Hi, thank you. Um, well, hi everyone. I've, I am Janet B from New Jersey. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia, and I am always happy to get to talk about um, God's search and rescue mission for Dr. Bob. His story is right after the end of A Vision for You. It's the first story that opens up the story section. Um, so we'll be pulling a lot of stuff out from there. Um, so we are all allowed to have our own concept of God, right? Big book tells us that. Well, here's mine. God created the world in six days, took a day off to rest. And instead of spending the rest of eternity watching Netflix, he decided he'd spend his time launching search and rescue missions for addicts. So here's the story of one of God's most successful search and rescue missions, the story of Dr. Bob, one of the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, the other, of course, being Bill Wilson. Um, so let's get some background on Dr. Bob. He starts out his story, page 171, if you have a big book saying, I was born in a small New England village of about 7,000 souls. And he goes on to say, everything was fine. His parents were fine. The town was fine. They were moral, good, upstanding people. And he had a really good childhood. His parents were great, but he became an addict anyway. And I think this is important because a lot of us say, well, the reason I'm a compulsive eater is because dot, dot, dot. And then we usually blame someone and it's usually our parents, right? Um, but in one of the stories in the big book, Freedom from Bondage, the author says she didn't become an alcoholic because of what happened in her childhood. But she said, quote, I am the result of the way I reacted to what happened to me as a child. So in this program, it's always on us, right? Are we going to forgive or are we going to blame others, you know, until we're 93 years old? Because ultimately the fact that I'm an addict has nothing to do with how I was raised. It has to do with the way I live my life. And Dr. Bob makes that clear. Um, on page 172, he says, I was the only child which perhaps engendered the selfishness which played an important part in bringing on my alcoholism. Now, of course, he is not saying that everyone should have more than one child or you're going to raise an addict. His point is that selfishness is a breeding ground for this illness. Not how good or bad our parents are, but how selfish I am. Um, Dr. Bob says, my whole life seems to, seemed to be centered around doing what I wanted to do without regard for the rights, wishes, and privileges of anyone else, a state of mind which became more and more predominant as the years passed. Well, that's interesting, right? We always talk about this illness as progressive, and that's correct. But we usually think of it in terms of food, right? Our binge is getting worse. But he's talking about even before that, um, the selfishness and self-centeredness got worse and worse. It's like he was tilling the soil of his soul to grow this illness, um, right? Our book says, page 62, selfishness and self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. So Dr. Bob was right on the money by saying selfishness and self-centeredness is the root. Um, 
I drew a picture in my big book. I drew a tiny little picture of a tree and I drew the roots under the tree and I wrote the words selfish and self-centered on the roots. The thing about roots is that you don't see them, right? They're hidden. So we can be really good at hiding our selfishness and self-centeredness. But on a tree, you see the fruit. And so I drew three little circles on my little baby tree, like, you know, deformed apples. And in one, I wrote an R for resentments. In one, I wrote an F for fear. And in the last one, I wrote an H for harms to others. That is the fruit of our illness. Um, so there's Dr. Bob saying he was selfish and self-centered. And you can even see it by the examples he gives. He says, my parents made me go to church and basically I'll show them. I decided when I was old enough, I'd never go to church except, you know, so he turns his back on God, except he says, when circumstances made it unwise to absent myself. So basically he was just like using church and using God like, oh, I'll go to church if so-and-so will be mad at me for not going, or if I'll look good, or it'll help me get a job, or if my boss sees me going, he'll be, he'll think I'm great. He used God and church in a selfish, self-serving way. Um, so it made me think, right? Something we should ask ourselves. Do I use religion? Do I use God in a self-serving way? Do I ignore God except when I want to treat him like a genie in a bottle? Like, God, things aren't working out too well in my life. Please come out of your bottle, make everything good again. And if you do, thanks, go back in your bottle and I'll call you again when I need you. And if you don't, well, then I just don't believe you exist. Um, that didn't work for me. Didn't work for Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob continues talking about the progression of his selfishness that he was drinking through college, through medical school. And something I noticed when I read this story, um, page 174, it says, when he was in college, his father made the long journey out to his school in the vain endeavor to get him straightened out, but it didn't work. Dr. Bob had a dad who really loved him and who may have died before Dr. Bob ever got sober. We don't know, the story doesn't tell us that. Um, but he loved him and Dr. Bob felt it. He mentioned his dad's attempt to help him twice in his story. And it made me think of times we might do something for people out of love and never see the results. We should do them anyway, right? Imagine if Dr. Bob's dad had said, I'm not going to try and help my son again for the 10th time. I'm not seeing any results. If he did that, none of us would be here, but he tried. And what that teaches me is that I should love, even when it's difficult and even when I don't see that love bearing fruit. So Bob becomes Dr. Bob eventually, bottom of page 174. Every mother's dream, right? My son, the doctor. Um, but then it, on the same page, it says, by this time, I was beginning to pay very dearly physically. And in hopes of relief, I voluntarily incarcerated myself at least a dozen times in one of the local sanitariums. Okay, here is a guy who really wants to get better. I mean, imagine six times and he's a doctor. So all the people in the hospital know him. 
but he does it anyway. He said, I need to be locked up because I just can't stop. So he had a desire to stop, but really important. I wish someone had told me this early on. It would have saved me seven years of hell in OA of binging. A desire alone does nothing. On page 24 of our big book, it says that at a certain point in the drinking of every abnormal drinker, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop is of absolutely no avail. Dr. Bob had a desperate desire to stop, but he didn't have the power. When the obsession struck, he did what any good addict would do. He got his friends to smuggle alcohol into the hospital, or he stole the alcohol in the building. So he got worse. He's in rehab, actually getting worse. And again, that was me my first seven years in OA, going to meetings, having about 50 different sponsors, doing the work they told me, but I got progressively worse because it wasn't the right work. I went from binging and purging twice a week to throwing up six times a day and needing major surgery on my esophagus. Like Dr. Bob, I had a desire. I did a bunch of work, but I was like someone with diabetes who just went to Diabetics Anonymous meetings without ever being taught how to inject insulin. I got worse and so did Dr. Bob. I mean, if we want it, we're gonna get it, right? Or I guess a better way to say it, if the illness demands that I eat, because remember, I have no choice. The illness will demand that I find a way to get it. I have no say in it. I heard a woman at an OA meeting say she, like Dr. Bob, locked herself up in a rehab for compulsive eating, and then she sent herself a candy gram. Um, Because unless we are safe and protected by God, we have no choice when it comes to food. So there's Dr. Bob not getting better. And again, his dad's trying to help him. His dad first went himself. Then he sent a doctor out from his hometown. Imagine like paying a doctor to travel a few states over to go help your son, right? That's love. Um, And then Dr. Bob's okay for a bit. Um, Then prohibition starts. So that means alcohol is illegal in all 50 states. So Dr. Bob says, I'm going to get drunk now because in a month when prohibition starts, well, I'm not going to be able to drink anyway. But of course, there were the bootleggers who sold the illegal alcohol. And it reminds me of what I was guilty of back when I was binging. It's the I'll start tomorrow syndrome, right? So here's Dr. Bob. I'll start when prohibition starts or me. I'll start tomorrow, Monday, the first of the month, the first of the year. I'll start tomorrow. What that really is, is making a God out of my pillow. Think about it. I'm thinking if I keep my head on this object, this pillow for eight hours, suddenly I am going to be cured and wake up with power that I never had before. They have ads for like miracle pillows on TV. That would be a true miracle pillow. Put your head on it, wake up, obsession gone. Unfortunately, there is no such thing. Um, So anyway, here's Dr. Bob goes on like this, working, drinking, passing out at home, going to work just so he could get enough money to drink. It's really sad. Um, 
And he kept this up for 17 years. And during this time, he says on page 177, I used to promise my wife, my friends, and my children that I would drink no more. Promises which seldom kept me sober, even through the day, though I was very sincere when I made them. Again, he was sincere. He had a desire. But a desire alone doesn't do it. Imagine someone has cancer, goes to their wife, their families, and their children, and says, I promise you, I will make my cancer cells stop multiplying. It would be heartbreaking, right? Because we would know that person had zero power to make their cancer cells stop multiplying. And Dr. Bob had zero power to make himself stop drinking. And I had zero power to make myself stop binging. So he went on like this. And then on page 178, he talks about a group of people he found. And he says, they attracted me because of their seeming poise health and happiness. So for some background, this was the Oxford group. This was a Christian spiritual group that helped people with different problems. And so he was attracted by their poise, poise, like a self-confidence, but not based on pride. It's based on a confidence that God's got my back and God's taking care of me. So I can really be comfortable in any situation. And that's what these people had. And he said they had great freedom from embarrassment. They were at ease on all occasions and appeared healthy, but most of all, they seemed happy. So again, these are traits that we should have in recovery, that people can look at us and say, oh my gosh, I, you know, we don't want people to say like, oh my gosh, I know she's in recovery, but she looks so sad. Like all she does is help others and stay abstinent and it's dragging her down. Like she can't even wash her hair or put lipstick on. Um, uh-uh. We are supposed to exude happiness, joy, and freedom. That is a promise of this program that we get that. It's a fruit, a result of doing this. So Dr. Bob, like he's no dummy, right? He looks at himself and sees that he's ill at ease. His health was at the breaking point and he is thoroughly miserable. And he says, I sense they had something I didn't have from which I might profit and I learned it was something of a spiritual nature, which didn't appeal to me very much. I mean, he's honest, right? He's like, okay, they're happy, healthy, and poised, and it's the result of some spiritual work. And yeah, I don't like it, but he said, nah, I thought it could do no harm. So I gave the matter time and study for two and a half years, but still got drunk every night. And isn't that a lot like us, right? I mean, I remember reading program literature while I was binging. It was like if I had cancer and I'm reading a manual on chemotherapy and how it works, but I'm not going for the chemo treatments. I'm not going to get better. And Dr. Bob read a lot and did not get better. And in a lovely, lovely testimony to his wife, he says on page 178, how my wife kept her faith and courage during all those years, I'll never know, but she did. If she had not, I know I would have been dead a long time ago. His wife had courage and she had faith. And the word courage, right? It always makes me think of the Wizard of Oz and the Cowardly Lion. And what did that lion do? He continued on to Oz, even though he had fear. And he made sure he had friends who propped him up when things got difficult. So in recovery, we need courage. 
um, when we sometimes all of us need help to keep going. We all have days when things are scary and things are hard. And hopefully, like we have friends to prop us up as we, you know, skip along the yellow brick road. Um, so Dr. Bob also says his wife's faith kept him alive. How come? Like, how could someone's faith help another person? Because faith actually does something in the spiritual world. Faith is currency there. It leads us to communicate with God. And maybe it was her faith, her whispered prayers to God that led God to say, my next search and rescue mission will be for that faithful woman's husband. Or maybe it was because at that point, Dr. Bob said at one of the Oxford group meetings held at the house of Henrietta Cyberling, remember that name, um, she was on God's search and rescue team for Bob. And he said at her house one night, guys, I have this confession to make. I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, they might have all been like chuckling behind their hands a little bit like, yeah, OK, Bob, tell us something we don't know. Um, they all knew he was an alcoholic. And Henrietta said, she just said, we'll pray for you. And there they were praying for him. So their faith, coupled with Dr. Bob's wife's faith, and what was the result? Well, we'll flip back a couple pages and we're gonna see the result of all that prayer. So back in the chapter, A Vision for You on page 155, we find our other co-founder, Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson didn't live anywhere near Dr. Bob, but he just happened, I say with air quotes, to be there on a business trip. He was there newly sober. His business deal had gone down the tubes. He was not in good health. He had no money and he was physically weak. And he said, I better do something. And so he went to a payphone, and there was a list of six churches. And he said, I have to find like a priest, a minister, someone who's going to know a drunk that I can help because I need that. And he called all six. And not until the last one did he get a pastor who said, I'll get you in touch with this woman. I think she's got some kind of spiritual group at her house. Maybe she can help. So Bill Wilson calls, yep, Henrietta. And when she answers the phone, he says, my name is Bill. I'm in town for business. I'm newly sober. Do you know a drunk that I can help? And she just simply said, we've been expecting you. We've been expecting you. She knew that her prayers were going to work. So it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I can't believe God answered my prayers. It's like, yeah, we prayed for help for Bob. We didn't know how it would come, but we knew that it would come. Because God isn't limited by how we think things will happen. Henrietta probably thought he was going to get sober in the Oxford group, not from some strange guy from, you know, halfway across the country who's calling her from a hotel lobby. But she said, we've been expecting you. So then what? She invites Bill over. She calls Dr. Bob's wife and says, bring Bob over here tomorrow to talk to this guy. And Dr. Bob, I mean, he wants to keep drinking. So he's like, fine, I'll go, but not for more than 15 minutes, right? He figures he can hold out for 15 minutes. So I actually did a little research in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age, about their first meeting and how Bill prepped for that meeting. 
Um, he talked to Dr. Silkworth, the author of the doctor's opinion before he left Akron, because he said they were trying to help people get better and they were talking strategy. And so Dr. Silkworth basically says, the, the thing isn't to throw facts and figures, get an identification and let the person see that they are powerless. Like, I find that fascinating. Basically, Dr. Silkworth said, the first thing to do is to kind of get a little relationship so that the person trusts you and then help the person see their powerlessness. And maybe that's why for me, going to a therapist didn't help with my compulsive eating or the religious route helped with other things, didn't help with my compulsive eating. Um, because what Dr. Silkworth told him is that basically you need to take a first step. You need to first admit you are powerless and your life is a total train wreck, ego deflation at great depth. Um, so that's what had to be done. So Bill went in there and instead of getting all spiritual and telling him how great the Oxford group was, he shared stories about how he used to drink and how he would say, I'm just going to have one but he kept drinking until he pretty much lost everything. And so he's telling Bob this, and I'm sure Dr. Bob was saying things like, yeah, I drink like that too. I did that too. So he went in there saying he was only going to stay for 15 minutes and he ended up staying more than six hours. Okay. So that's another thing about Bill Wilson. He was willing to put in the time to help another person. Um, and Dr. Bob was willing to do the work but not quite willing enough, right? On page 155, it says, a spiritual experience, he, Dr. Bob conceded, was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. Why, he argued, should he foolishly admit his problem to his clients? He would do anything, he said, but that. And as we'll see, his but that would get him into trouble. So Bill stayed with Bob for three weeks, worked with him. Bob stopped drinking. And then he went for a, he went, he went to a medical conference where he got drunk. And I find it fascinating what happens next. You know, if Dr. Bob had been sponsored by some people these days, the person would have said, Oh, I already put three weeks in. You got drunk. You're on your own. Go find another sponsor. Um, but Bill didn't do that. Dr. Bob got drunk at his conference, got drunk on the way home, wakes up drunk at a friend's house, not even knowing how he Can got we go on the marker board. No, the friend called his wife who called Bill. And what did Bill do? He doesn't say, Bob, I spent three weeks of my life working with you so you'd get better. How dare you do this to me? Or I told you, you shouldn't get on that train with so little time under your belt. I'm out of here. Back to New York. Goodbye and good luck. He didn't do that. Here's what Dr. Bob said that Bill did. He came and got me home and to bed. He took him home. He put him to bed. I mean, think about putting a drunk alcoholic to bed. Bob probably smelled. Bill probably took his shoes off his dirty feet and covered him with a blanket. And Bill stayed with him. And there's an interesting line here on page 180 that I always wondered about. It says he, he, the next day he gave him one glass of beer. And I'm thinking, why on earth did he give him one glass of beer the next day? 
And the reason is Dr. Bob was scheduled to do a surgery that only he could do. This is like a couple days he after he got back from that little trip gone bad. And he was shaking so badly that Bill gave him one glass of beer to steady his hand so that he could perform the surgery. So this is not to say that if someone goes out there, we bring them home and give them one Milky Way the next day. There was a very specific reason why Bill did that for Dr. Bob. Um, so by the way, Dr. Bob did the surgery. It was successful and he never drank again because right after that surgery, he went around the town and he told all the people he didn't want to that he was an alcoholic. So his I'll do anything but that became I'll do anything, period. And we know that's critical, right? Page 58 tells us that um, the people who can work this program, it says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then I say then and only then are you ready to take certain steps. So Bob became willing and he never drank again. And he spends the last couple of pages in his story talking about his recovery and giving us many pearls of wisdom. So that was the story. And now here come his pearls of wisdom. He says, okay, you may be asking, what did Bill do or say that was different from what others had said or done? Because, you know, we can assume he's read the Bible, he's read spiritual literature. So he's got the spiritual end and he's a doctor. So he knew the physical end, but he says, Bill gave him correct information and he and love right um bill wasn't bob wasn't a project to bill he loved him there's love if you're going to take a drunk man home and take his shoes off and put him to bed so love and good information and dr bob says of far more importance was the fact he was the first living human with whom i had ever talked who knew what he was talking about in regard to alcoholism from actual experience. In other words, he talked my language. And that comports with what it says in the forward to the third edition. Recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. But why? Why don't they say recovery begins when like, I take a certain step? And I think it's because when one addict talks to another, something happens. There's more than a conveying of information. There's a transmission. Bill Wilson was transmitting something to Dr. Bob. I looked up the definition of transmission. It says something like light, heat, sound, electricity, or other energy passes through a medium, kind of like telephones transmitting sound waves. And I think that in God's search and rescue, mission for Dr. Bob. God used Bill Wilson to transmit God's own love and concern for Bob. And if we go back to page 164, the end of the chapter of Vision for You, it talks about this kind of transmission. It says, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. So see to it that your relationship with him, with God is right. And great things will come to pass for you and countless others. See to it that your relationship with God is right. That's the condition. Well, what does that mean? Well, remember when Bill Wilson first got sober and was in the hospital, he said, the thought came to me that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given to me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They in turn could help others. 
But before Bill could be fit for this work, he had to see to it that his own relationship with God was right. How did he do that? Well, how do we all do that? Page 164 tells us, abandon yourself to God as you understand him. That means basically give God a blank check with our lives. It says, admit our faults to him. Okay, that's a little hard. And admit them to your fellows as well. Well, that's a lot hard sometimes, right? To admit them to someone else. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find. And when we do that, we can join them. Bill did that. He made six calls. He didn't just make two and say, I give up. Then he went to the strange woman, Henrietta's house. And even before he went, he calls Dr. Silkworth to brainstorm the best way to help this guy who he has never met. And he spends over six hours with him that day. And then he stays in town for three weeks to help him. And then when he finally thinks he's helped someone, Dr. Bob breaks his heart by coming home drunk. But he kept at it with Dr. Bob, right? Thank God, because if he hadn't, None of us would be here today. Every now and then, someone will say something bad about Bill Wilson, like, oh, he did this thing or that thing that wasn't right. And what I say is, first, I don't know what Bill Wilson did or didn't do, and it's none of my business. But more important, I say, look what Bill did like for me, for you, for all of us. I think that's what we should think about when we think of Bill Wilson. So back to our text, page 180, Dr. Bob says, it's the most wonderful blessing to be relieved of the terrible curse with which I was afflicted. He says, I've regained my health, my self-respect, and my home life is ideal. And then he says he spends a great deal of time passing this on to others who want and need it badly. And he gives four reasons why he does it. One, a sense of duty. Two, it's a pleasure. Three, in doing so, he's paying his debt to the person who carried the message to him. And four, as an insurance policy against drinking again. First, it's a duty because the truth is, I mean, I'll admit it. Sometimes I don't want to pick up the phone. Like, I don't want to take the time. God hasn't 100% finished with me and I'm still selfish sometimes. So some days, yeah, I do it out of duty. But often and more often as time goes by, it's for the second reason. It is a pleasure to work with someone who's like desperate for this thing. And if you're one of those people and you're struggling, call me. I love talking to people who are desperate and will do anything. Um, but the more we grow spiritually, the more what we have to do and what we want to do become the same thing. The more we grow spiritually, the more, oh wait, I lost my page. The more we grow spiritually, the more what we have to do and what we want to do become closer together. And then his third reason, in doing so, I'm paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. That's gratitude in action. And I'll tell you, if I see my sponsees like working with one of their sponsees or speaking at a meeting about how God has removed the food obsession, it makes my heart light up with joy. Um, and last, he says, every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. It is our best insurance policy. First line of the chapter, working with others, says nothing will so much ensure immunity against alcoholism or compulsive eating as intensive work 
with other alcoholics, compulsive eaters, intensive work. So Dr. Bob says he used to get upset when he saw his friends drink, but he couldn't. So he says, I schooled myself to believe that though I once had the same privilege, I abused it so frightfully, it was withdrawn. So we can do that. We can say to ourselves like something like this, self, we used to have the privilege to be able to do whatever, but we've abused that privilege and we don't have it anymore. So let's get down to work so that we can have God remove this obsession and help others. Just like if you get too many in too many car accidents, your privilege to have a driver's license gets revoked. And then he just starts talking some tough love. Um, he says, if you think you're an atheist or an agnostic or skeptic or have any other form of intellectual pride, which keeps you from accepting what's in this book, I feel sorry for you. It's interesting. He calls atheism, agnosticism, and skepticism forms of pride. Um, because that's really me thinking I can do it on my own. And I love how he doesn't say, if you are an atheist, agnostic, or skeptic, he says, if you think you're an atheist, agnostic, or skeptic, meaning you may think you are, but you're really not. Well, how could that be? Um, I guess it would be like me thinking I have no lungs inside of myself. I could think that, right? This is America. Um, I'm free to think and say what I want. So I could say I'm a lung atheist and I could really believe it. But of course, what I think about my lack of lungs doesn't matter at all. And our book tells us on page 55, deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So between those two lungs that I may or may not believe that I have, God planted the fundamental idea of himself. And the big book says this fundamental idea of God inside of us may be obscured, but it's there. And I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but we have plenty of podcasts on the chapter We Agnostic, where we go into depth on how to find God and what may be blocking us from God. But for now, like just suffice it to say, Dr. Bob says, you may think you're an agnostic, but you're really not. And it's almost like an invitation. Don't have so much pride that you block yourself off from the sunlight of the spirit. And Dr. Bob continues on with his tough love. If you think you're strong enough to do it your way, that's your affair. Like, we're not going to try to convince you that you need this. But he says, if you really want to quit for good and all, not just to look good at that high school reunion. So the boy who dumped you when you were 17 feels bad. If you want to quit for good and all and feel you need help, he says, we know we have an answer for you. And then here's his conditional promise. It never fails, but here's the condition. It never fails if you go about it with one half the zeal you've been in the habit of showing when you were getting another drink. Well, I put a lot of zeal into getting my binge foods. I stole food. I stole money for food. I walked the streets of New York City at 2 a.m. with my rent money to get food. Um, today, I have to put that kind of zeal into my recovery. And if we do this work, he tells us, we are promised, promised, like ironclad guarantee, it will never fail. And on the last line, he tells us why. Because our heavenly father will never let us down. God will never let us down. 
I believe we are all here because just like he did for Dr. Bob, God launched a search and rescue mission for each and every one of us. And he's given us a manual. It's blue. Um, and he's given us people to help us so that we can recover and then join him on his search and rescue missions for others, the way that Bill joined him and helped rescue Dr. Bob. Like what a glorious sense of purpose for all of us. And really, truly, what a glorious God to allow us to participate in this. And with that, I pass. Thanks.